Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And yes, I am wearing a sweater. I am wearing a sweater. Now, you would say, duh, Mark, of course you are. But I just want you to know I'm saying that because when we started these virtual gatherings, it was back in March. I was wearing a long sleeve shirt. Then we moved into summer, wearing short sleeves. Now we're into September, and I'm wearing a sweater. It's officially fall. Welcome. We are glad that you're here. If you're new to watching this for the first time, forgive my rant. It's good to be with you, and I'm really glad that you're with us. This morning, we're going to be diving in to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And I am particularly excited about this passage because this passage, and more specifically verse 15, had a real significant um, impact on my life about eight, eight, nine years ago. So I'll tell you the story real quick. A few years ago, well, eight or nine years ago, um, I, that's before kids. Amy and I, we were, we were um, at a Capitol Hill dive bar. And we were like hanging out with friends. And this was after a concert that I had just played. And I was really excited. Amy and I had just joined the Hallows Church we were just on fire. We were excited to be living missionally. And we're, we're at this place and we're talking about our faith and our faith comes up and then our church comes up. And then all of a sudden, like a movie, everything gets dark. And out of the shadows of the booth is this woman who is very opposed to what we are saying. And she starts talking to us in such a way that she, it's clear that she's attacking not just us, but our faith. And now, Amy and I did not necessarily know how to respond to this, these accusations. And we were trying to be friendly and nice, but we left that, that moment, we left that evening not very happy. And in fact, I was troubled in my heart because I was wanting to defend my faith to defend this, this hope that I have of the gospel, and yet I didn't know what to say. I didn't have the words to, to say what I wanted. And I think and I hope that you can identify with me in that experience. Filled with excitement to be faithful and to be a gospel presence in the community, to have the desire to live like Christ and to tell others about it, Every once in a while, you will come along to a scenario or a season or a moment that your efforts are not very appreciated, that your efforts are not recognized in the way that you would hope them to be. You go into a conversation being hopeful, but you leave feeling hopeless, right? But here's, and here's the problem, and here's the problem with my experience is that I was so wrapped up in what I was going to say and what I was thinking about and what everything I did wrong that I was forgetting all of what God was doing in and through me. And this passage brought me so much comfort, brought me so much hope because it reminded me of what it means to defend the hope that's within me, and what's my posture when I'm doing so. 
So this morning, we're looking at this passage that gives us three instructions, three instructions of defending the hope that's within us and giving us the posture of that kind of defense. So would you pray with me before we, be, before we keep going? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray, God, that you would equip us, instruct us, help us understand the gospel in a greater new way that we can then live out in confident devotion, live out our faith in a posture that is gentle and respectful, but that is leaning on the truth of you and your word. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So, like I said, our passage, it gives us three instructions that Peter's beginning. And the first is, well, let me back up here. So it says we, he's giving us instruction to be confidently devoted to doing good. Then he's giving us this defense of the hope, saying defend the hope that is within you through this apologetic persuasion. I'm going to explain that in a little bit. But doing so with this instruction, he also demonstrates us and gives us this posture of incarnational integrity. And those are the three areas that we're going to be focusing on in, this, uh, in our passage for this morning. So first, let's look at confident devotion. This is verses 13 and 14. Why don't you read this with me? It says, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. Now, our passage is continuing. Verse 13 is continuing off from verse 12. From verse 12 or verse 11 and 12, he says, let him seek peace and pursue it. And this is the big focal point. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. Then he says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. So verse 13 is a, is a hypothetical question meant to display the reality of the Christian's perspective, which is this. God's eyes are on you. He has you. So why should you be afraid? There is no reason to be afraid because your Eternal security is placed in God. He has you. His eyes are on you. His ears are open to your prayers. It's similar to the question that Paul raises in Romans chapter 8, verses 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And what I love about this is that Peter is actually quoting Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13. And this gives us this background. So let me read this to you. This is Isaiah 12, or it's Isaiah 8, chapter, verses 12 through 13. It says, Do not call everything a conspiracy these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Peter would say, Do not be afraid. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. So confident devotion to doing good. We are in this public sphere. We're in this public square. 
living honorable lives to our citizenship of the king. We're living our lives as as, uh, sons and daughters of God, as heirs. And in that eternal security, we are able to live in a confident devotion. So what that looks like is when we go into these, these places, we're going to be told to be afraid of this, be afraid of that, be afraid of this. This is falling apart. Bad news is happening here. Honestly, does this sound a little familiar right now? These things are going on. Everything you should be afraid of, but it says you have nothing to fear. Why should you be afraid when God's eyes are on you and his ear is open to your prayer? What do you have to be afraid of? What do you have to be afraid of? And earlier, and Peter is instructing the church to be a people that live in such devotion, such confident devotion to God, that it's going to cause the entire society to turn and ask questions, to say, what's up with them? What's up with that? St. Augustine, who we bring up all the time because he's amazing, we talk, he talks and writes about a similar thing in the city of God where he describes citizens, us, as we would say strangers and exiles, citizens of a heavenly city, led to live a life in this earthly city like we're in a foreign land. And it's in this place that Peter instructs and defines the church's posture when that moment, when those moments happen. When you are in a place where there is suffering, people are trying to impart suffering on you, People are telling you to be afraid. This is what you do in response to that. You give a defense for the hope that is within you. And in a posture that is so completely different, it causes people to stop and ask questions. And in this, this is speaking in apologetic persuasion. Speaking in apologetic persuasion, what does that even mean, Mark? Verse 15, let's take a look. It says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, friends, this verse has weight to it. All scripture has weight to it. I'm not saying that It doesn't have weight to it. But I want to emphasize this verse has a lot of weight to it. Out of this verse has been the framework has been built on uh, apologetics, the school of apologetics within theology. And I'm going to describe that in a minute. So what I want to do first is I want to focus in on the word defense. So look at that word defense. Grab your pencil, grab your pen, your highlighter, whatever you have. Mark that word defense. Okay? Defense. Let's look at that word. This is a legal term. This is a legal term in the Greek when it means, and it's, it's Greek word is apologia. Apologia. And this is a word to define someone in a legal setting defending and explaining their position, their position in a courtroom type legal setting. 
right? This is where we get the word apology because apology doesn't mean what we, what we now says it means. It didn't used to mean that. An apology, what we now say is, I'm saying I'm sorry. When we give an apology, we're giving an apology, but really, or we're saying I'm sorry, but in this sense where the true definition of apology is to give a defense, to give an explanation for the actions and for the things that the position that you find yourself in. So apologies, it doesn't have the same meaning today. But apologetics then is this school of theology that came from this term, defense, to give a defense of the faith. That's where we find apologetics in, right? And this verse in particular, it places apologetics in this kind of, in this form. Now, apologetics is really closely related to evangelism, but its focus is not necessarily to win people to Christ, though that is definitely a benefit. Its purpose is to clearly and rationally explain and defend the faith. So this has gotten people excited, and the the church has grown and, and used apologetics to defend the faith, to explain it, using elements of philosophy, of science, and theology to give this, to, to present the gospel in a way that the outside world sees is a rational, reasonable faith. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful subject to study. But we see this kind of defense um, we see this kind of defense when Paul is speaking to different crowds, right? So looking back to Acts, this is, a, this is what the biggest definition of this would be in. It's in Acts 21 when Paul is getting, he just got beaten and he's now being asked to defend himself. It says Acts 20, 22 verses 1 says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. Acts 24, verses 10, it says, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, because I know you've been a judge of this nation for many years, right? He's in a legal setting, in a courtroom setting. I am glad to offer my defense, my apologia to you in what concerns me. Now wait, Peter, why are you instructing us, us everyday Christians, to be ready to give a legal defense, a, 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 an apologia that's clearly defined in this message in such a casual setting. This is just the everyday life. Are you telling us that we need to be prepared to give this kind of argument in the everyday happenings of life? Yep, that's exactly what he's saying. I don't want you to be mistaken. Yes, Peter is using a legal term to define how we operate in an everyday setting, what we say in this everyday setting, and we should be prepared. Yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. But here's why. Here's why. Because the truth of the gospel is not a private, subjective, religious experience. The truth of the gospel is an objective reality, 
intended for the most elite intellectual settings and the most humble of circumstances. The gospel lives in both arenas. Let me say that one more time. The truth of the gospel is an objective reality intended for the most elite intellectual settings and the most humble circumstances. Scripture is not saying that each person needs to be a highly skilled apologist. It's not saying that that needs to become our new profession. But what it does say is that we need to take our faith in how we define it to people seriously. That we need to realize and know the depth, at least a part of the depth of how the gospel speaks into every arena of our life. It's not just a simple faith. Though it can be fine that way, the depths of the gospel are deep. It is a deep, deep reality that we have the privilege of, of swimming in and understanding. And this is the, the, the other part that I want you to remember, too, is that, no, you don't have to be a highly skilled apologist, but God is using you, using you as an apologist. God is using you. You are important. You are important to the church. If there's anything about this that it says give a defense, he's not saying let another person give a defense. No, he's speaking directly to us. You give a defense. Why? Because God is giving you the ability to. Rest in the assurance that God is giving you this knowledge, even when you think that it's scary, even when you think that you don't know what to say. You are important for the church. The church needs your perspective, needs your experience and needs your understanding of these areas to speak into and to, to speak into the, the, the broader public areas as a way of defending the faith. We need you. The church needs you. So, so rest in that for a minute. But you still Maybe you're resting in the same thing. I know, Mark, okay, I know how to, okay, I need to start doing this, I need to start doing this. But how? How do I even do this? Because that's the next question, right? That's the next question. Great. Okay, let's start. What do I start looking up? What do I start doing? What if I have that experience tomorrow? What if I have that conversation that you had eight years ago? By the way, I haven't, it's not like I haven't had that conversation since. That one just particularly burns like a, a Sad memory in my mind. But anyway, what if you say, well, what do I do with that? So let's, let's just begin. Let's begin there. Because if you're anything like me, you're struggling to figure out what to say in this kind of setting. So there's an approach of defending our faith that I want you to consider. Okay, This approach is, is a defense of the faith, and this is what it is. In this situation where someone makes a claim, that your faith is, is false, right? That the Christian faith, the Christian worldview is false. This is what I want you to do. I want you to discern these questions. Is this person 
claiming a belief? Or are they making a statement? Or are they telling me a story? Is this person claiming a belief? And by that, are they claiming my faith is false because theirs is true? Are they giving me an account of their religious experience? Are they talking to me about their religion? Are they talking to me about a, a, uh, an Eastern mysticism? Are they explaining something to me that is a belief that they, that they are holding? If so, then you can use the Bible to show who the one and true God is. Go to Genesis, go to Exodus, go to the Gospels and see how Jesus is the, perfect, is the Son of God and came to save the lives of those who are, are lost, right? You can use Scripture in that way. But here's the thing, that conversation is going to revolve around belief. A belief in being knowledgeable of other religions is going to help you in this area. So if you're not particularly experienced in, in thinking about and understanding the basic doctrines of Islam, uh, the basic understanding of Buddhism, this is going to help you in those types of moments. Second, if this person, is this person making a statement? Making a statement, meaning, are they arguing a philosophical or scientific position? Are they making a statement like that? If so, this is going to change that conversation, right? Oftentimes, we don't sit and just discern what a person is trying to say. And we're just too quick to try to chime in on things. Listen, listen to them. Listen to them and hear what they have to say. Now, in this case, this is where church history and church philosophy, Christian worldview, all benefits us and something that Christians should be learning, should be thinking through and to see how how amazingly well scientific data points to a creator, right? So put under your belt one basic theistic argument for, for the creation of the world. Think through that. If you're wondering, if you're like, Mark, what are you even talking about? If you're thinking through that, just think of, uh, look up the Kalam cosmological argument. That's something that I'm personally, I'm kind of weak in this area. So I'm personally, I'm trying to memorize that because it's simple, it's effective, and it starts this conversation and allows me to be able to defend my faith in a way that if I have this conversation, I'm going to be able to understand and, and contribute to what what the claims are being made. So, Kalam cosmological argument, if you want to go deep there. Now, what we normally find, though, we'll find sometimes people are telling us a belief, sometimes people are making a statement, but what we're mostly going to find is people want to tell us a story. People want to tell us a story. They've been burned by the church. Maybe they had an experience that altered the way that they think about church. They're resentful towards it. Maybe when they, they're not a believer, but someone acted in an evil way and then called themselves a Christian. This is where we find the church resting in 
a lot. And in this case, when someone's telling you a story, listen to the story, but then use the power of your story. God has placed you in a, in a big, grand narrative that is captivating, that is rich, that is filled with experience and perspective. Use that. Use that to benefit another by showing them that they can be a part of a conversation too, that they can be a part of this bigger story, I mean, as well. But asking yourself these questions, you're going to be able to engage in a conversation with more clarity, discern with more clarity what God is doing right now. What are they saying to you? Is it a belief? Is it a statement? Or is it a story? Being apologetically persuasive is using your current disposition to strengthen the areas you're growing in. So what do I mean by that? I mean, not all of us are called to be skilled apologists, but we can use our dispositions to help strengthen the areas we're still growing in. So for me, if I, lo I love to tell stories, if I want to tell stories, if I want to share my testimony, my experience to others, but I want to grow in my understanding of different religions, and I also want to grow in my understandings of philosophical arguments. So that can help um, give me more balance when I'm defending the faith, when I'm defending the hope that's within me. But the purpose is not to win an argument for argument's sake. That is not what I'm saying the purpose is to explain the hope that you have within you. Out of confident devotion to Christ, defend the hope that's within you and use your strengths to help your weaknesses. But this cannot be done. This cannot be done without a complete dependency on Christ. Our words mean nothing if Christ isn't given lordship over every areas of our lives, including that conversation. That's why we need to look back a little bit at this top verse where it says, where it talks about our hearts regarding Christ the Lord as holy in verse 15, because the outpouring of the hope within us is the outpouring of the heart. Luke 6, verse 45 says, A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart. It is in that love. It is in, it is in that place where our hearts are just regarding, just understanding and meditating and living in the reality of Christ's love for us, that this knowledge, this knowledge of who he is, what he has done, how that affects me and the world around us, it then is the outpouring, then flows out a, a Swiss theologian, a Swiss theologian explained it this way. He said this, it's like a mother 
smiling at her newborn child for many days and weeks. And she finally receives her child's smile in response. She has awakened love in the heart of her child. And as the child awakens to love, it also awakens to knowledge. Isn't that beautiful? As she awakened love in the heart of her child, as the child awakens to love, it also awakens to knowledge. Friends, this is, this is what it means. To the outpouring, the defense of the faith is an outpouring of the love that God has given us and, the, and our understanding of that, the knowledge of what God is doing in our lives. Apologetic persuasion is not winning arguments. It's recognizing the awakened love you have experienced in Christ. In that love awakens in knowledge a beauty and a wonder of Jesus that is far more vast than we know. But Christ says, come. Come and behold this wondrous mystery. And it's there when we live in this truth. When, we, when our hearts are regarding Christ as holy, as Lord of all, we are able to explain our faith. We're able to defend the hope. But we're going to do it in a posture that is completely countercultural, in a posture that is in, filled with incarnational integrity. So what do I mean by that? I mean living out, we are going to live out our faith in such a way that people can't help but see the hope that's within you. That when they see you, they see Jesus. It is the integrity of our outward actions exemplifying the gospel. This is incarnational integrity. Verses 16 through 17, read this. Yet do this, defending the faith, living in uh, complete devotion to doing good, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, this reminds me of a story of a Christian martyr named Polycarp. Polycarp, this is an old story of, the, of Christian martyrdom, but he gives, exemplifies to us incarnational integrity. And let me, let me tell you the story here. He was an old elderly man in the early church, and he was loved by the church because he loved them so much and he loved his enemies. The night that he was getting arrested, soldiers were on their, on their way to his house to arrest him. And what they were about to take him to was an arena where he was either going to be devoured by lions or he was going to be burned at the stake. This was a reality that he knew about, that he knew. So his friends in the house, they were pleading with him to escape Escape the house, leave, find another place. But he wouldn't. Instead, 
he waited outside on the porch for the soldiers to come. And when they arrived, they found him there, and he was so gentle, so kind, he invited them in the house, and he sat them down, and he fed them dinner. He gave them a huge meal. And he sat with them, he served them, he ate with them. And he was so kind that the soldiers, they began to question why they were even there in the first place. Like, what, what is happening right now? What I thought was going to be one thing is the exact opposite. And then at the table, as they finished that meal, he asked if he could pray quickly, if he could pray before they left. And he said yes, and so right then and there at the table, he prayed. And his prayers were so genuine, his prayers were so personal that the soldiers were captivated by his faith and watched him pray for over two hours. And it says this, those who heard him were struck with admiration. And many were sorry that they had come to fetch so old of a man of God. Gentleness and respect are these qualities that the church serves at the table of our enemies. We come into, we come into our culture, our city, our surroundings to bring gentleness and respect a posture of incarnational integrity, to be living like Christ. To be the body of Christ is to live so closely to him, to be mindful, to be thinking through what God is doing, who he is, and that is the outpouring, is the outpouring of our hearts and is an actionable conduct. Sorry, the outpouring of our hearts is the actionable conduct of Christ. Is living in Christ to show Christ to others. Luke 12, verse 11 through 12. This is what Jesus tells us. This is what Jesus tells us in this. Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. This is probably, I mean, that is so comfort to, comforting to me in light of this passage. Because when I, am, when I am devoted to doing good, to living out the gospel, when I'm thinking, meditating, living in the light of the gospel, of what Jesus calls me to be, the outpouring of that, is going to look countercultural, but it is going to exemplify the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is going to use me so that in moments when I'm being challenged, when moments when my faith is being challenged, I don't need to worry about the eternal perspective. Like before, I don't need to be afraid. Because God is working in and through me, and he is going to teach me what to say in that very moment. The radical call of the church that differentiates us between, between others is the hope 
that we have within us and our dependency on the Holy Spirit, our hope of Christ's transformative grace turns revenge to rejoicing. It turns anger to joy. It turns disagreement to fellowship. When we are told to give up our faith, we defend our hope. And the Holy Spirit works in us and through us, helping us understand, giving us the words to say. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says, For this reason we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. As we close our time together, I want to encourage you. Encourage you to not be afraid of the difficult conversations that maybe you've had in the past. Maybe the experience that maybe you had like mine. But to remember. Remember to live your life completely devoted. Completely devoted to God. To be thinking through what Jesus has done for you so that the outpouring of your heart is going to exemplify the gospel in all of life. And as we close, I want to I read this, this poem um, called St. Patrick's Breastplate. And this is what it says. It says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, beneath me, above me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left. When I lie down, when I sit down, when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Oh, wouldn't we? That is such a a poem to consider and to desire as the church. In the city of Seattle... Going out to the lost, let that be our desire that when people see us, they see Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you give us these instructions and fill us with hope. That you are the hope within us. You give us eternal security And we go and we live our lives resting in that. And in that security, we're able to defend our hope. And I pray, God, that you would help us learn, that you would help us grow in that area, in the areas that we are maybe, we haven't considered. Help us think through that and let it be the outpouring of the grace that you've given We love you so much and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.